Megan McCain has entered the chat. Welcome back to Megan McCain has entered the chat with me, Megan McCain. I know I say this every single week, but I really mean it. We have such an incredible group of guests today. We have Bacha Ungar Sargon, who is the opinion editor at Newsweek. Uh, she's just like an absolutely fascinating and wildly intelligent woman. We talk about the election and a bunch of other stuff. And then we have Mary Morgan, who is co-host of Pop Culture Crisis at Timcast Media, which is a live daily show on YouTube uh, that navigates the insanity of today's pop culture. She's so smart, going to get into the Grammys and all pop culture news, things having to do with Taylor Swift. And um, I also want to give a shout out to Donna, who uh, approached my husband at Harris Teeter when he was grocery shopping on Saturday and said that both she and her book club loved the podcast. So thank you, Made My Saturday. Ben was so excited, and I'm really, like, so grateful. I'm so glad you're – I don't know what your book club's called, but thank you for listening to the podcast. We're really very happy. So sweet, right, Miranda? Um, thank you, Donna. We love you. Yeah, approach Ben. He was shopping for Harris Teeter. He had to go get milk and eggs and all the stuff you need for little kids. And <laughs> uh was like he, – he texted me and then called me afterward, and I was like, well, what a lovely surprise. So That's so sweet. Yeah, so people are listening, and it's all good. And, um, yeah, we're going to get into it with Mary and Bacha and then um, coming up we have some really great episodes coming up including a full-blown love episode for Valentine's Day which I'm very excited to do Uh, and yeah thank you all for listening let's get into it Welcome back to Megan McCain has entered the chat. Oh, so excited for this guest. Uh, Batya Ungar Sargon is the opinion editor at Newsweek, author of Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy, and the forthcoming Second Class, How the Elites Betrayed America's Working Men and Women. So excited for that. I know you can't talk about it, uh, but very excited for your second book. Batya, thank you so much for coming on. You know, I'm such a fan of yours. Uh, it is such a huge, huge honor and privilege to be here with you, Megan. Oh, you are please. known within the Jewish community these days as one Girl. of the few who can really see it and who stands up for us and uses your platform to just say absolutely yeah. not to anti-Semitism on the right and the left. And I just can't tell you what that means to to us at this oh. time. So thank you so much for all of that. It's such an honor to be here. Well, I really obviously deeply appreciate you saying that. And I do. I it makes me sad because it's just not that hard and I don't understand the extreme cowardice from people and I also have a real um, deep appreciation for the kind of education uh, I was given when I was growing up. I had a Holocaust survivor come and speak in my seventh grade classroom. We screened Schindler's List. I went to the Museum of Tolerance when I was a freshman in high school uh, and my parents obviously had like you know instilled a lot of these pro-Israel values in me and I took it for granted and didn't realize how important it would be to me as an adult. And now my husband and I are having like active conversations about how we can do this same blueprint that he and I got to our children because apparently being anti-Semitic is something that's passing <laughs> in culture today and it blows, it's just a hideous poison. I mean, I was going to get to this topic. We can jump right into it. Um, you actually tweeted, quote, I'm working on a presentation about anti-Semitism, particularly on the left. It's my view that this is largely an elite phenomenon tied to the way universities, tech identities and politics more broadly. Um, can you can you explain to me a what your presentation is going to be or if you already did it? And, and it really has been very surprising to me, Bacha, how this snake has reared its head recently. Why do you think we're in this place right now? 
Uh, it's a great question. Um, the presentation is for the Stryker Centers having um, on February 27th, uh, 10 speakers, each speaking for 18 minutes long about anti-Semitism, about a different aspect of it. And they asked me to speak about left wing anti-Semitism. And I'm very curious, actually, if you agree with me, because a lot of people on social media when I posted that didn't agree with me. But it is my view that by and large, anti-Semitism on the left today in 2024 is very much an elite phenomenon. So you'll see it in um, among politicians like the squad, right? like left-wing progressive politicians. You'll see it on college campuses and in universities. You'll see it from people with higher degrees, in, especially in like the social sciences, like social workers. Um, and then, of course, you'll see it on TikTok, which is not an elite space, but is where the Chinese Communist Party tries to sow division basically in America, because they are our enemies. <laughs> That's what they're trying to do. Um, but by and large, the American working class is the least anti-Semitic uh, population to ever exist on planet Earth. We are incredibly, incredibly, incredibly grateful um, and and lucky to be Americans. I mean, and we are still, I believe, you know, the luckiest Jews to ever walk planet Earth, the safest Jews to ever walk planet Earth. And I sort of, um, I don't like it when people talk about college students being unsafe, because as you know, Megan, leftists are cowards. I mean, they're physical cowards, right? Like mm -hmm. they, they're scared of guns, they're scared of fighting, right? Yeah. It's just a bunch of sociopaths in blue hair, like Mark and chanting Hamas slogans and the idea that Jews should be afraid of that. I'm so deeply offended by that. Um, and But to me, there's just no buy-in from the working class. So for example, in Europe, which is sort of steeped in Jewish blood, for millennia, when politicians wanted support, they would get up and give anti-Semitic speeches and the working class was sort of primed to blame all their problems on the Jews. I mean, this is what happened in Poland and why they were so ripe for, you know, all everything that happened during the Holocaust. Um, but you see it in Europe as well. You see it in England as well, like at these protests tests. It's not just elites like it is here. There's a lot of buy-in from the working class when you bring up anti-Semitic themes. It is my view that in America, we're so lucky. The Protestantism that prevails here um, is deeply philo-Semitic. It's very pro-Israel. Um, and there's just, you, like when a politician like, you know, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, or AOC gets up and says something anti-Semitic, the people who are going to sort of yas-queen them mm -hmm. are going to be the college educated. It's not going to be um, they're working class, you know, Hispanic or black voters. Um, it's not going to be, you know, working class whites for sure. There's just not that kind of buy-in for it. And so that's kind of my view. Of course, you are seeing it kind of there is more today than there was before October 7th. But I think a lot of that has to do with TikTok and the TikTokification of the news. And I, I, honestly, I just don't feel threatened by that. Because like I said, you just you have to fight those ideas with better ideas. This is America. We don't believe in censoring speech. We believe that there are no ideas that you can't combat with better with better ideas. So I feel like we're it is rising, but I also feel like we need to be very clear about what's happening. The elite universities are cesspools of woke mind virus, which teach people that they should hate white people, hate America, and therefore hate Israel and hate Jews. It's not because they're anti-Semitic, it's because they're anti-Western and anti-America. That's that's my view. Yeah, and I think what's what's been I actually was at a dinner party, which sounds very elite. Um, I don't know if uh, right after October 7th and the there was a very liberal person who said, yeah, but it's on your side, too. And I said, but the difference is on my side, it's rednecks with tiki torches in Charlottesville. And on your side, 
it's major actors, it's the head of Harvard, it's the head of major institutions, it's the congresswoman who's invited to the Met Ball. We're talking about the elite of the elite of the wealthy of the 1% that are running everything. It's not just crazy people. And I stand by that statement. Um, I also think that it's it's been interesting to watch for me, like how my baseline is obviously just like the politics I was raised in, the faith I was raised in, but also we are a Judeo-Christian nation. My patriotism is wrapped up in being a Judeo-Christian nation, Judeo-Christian nation. And I think part of the thing that people like the squad have have really underestimated is there's still a lot of really patriotic Americans who are going to stand by our Jewish brothers and sisters because the alternative to that is something we don't want. And I think they have sort of not clocked that because they probably have never gone to a church in a red state and know how much Israel has quite frankly been talked about, at least in my pulpits growing up. Um, and I think they, they haven't under understood that. Uh, but, you know, I find the squad repulsive just like everybody else. But I'm hoping that people finally see this cancer for what it is. This has been a very illuminating time, at least for me, where I was like, see, I told you this was happening. I'm not crazy. Do you feel the same way? Um, yeah, I sort of had my, I used to be pretty woke and then I had my big like unawokening, you know, in 2018, 2019, really, where I started to realize like, oh, this worldview is like fundamentally flawed, is deeply anti-Semitic and also very anti-American and very alien in the communities that it purports to represent, you know, like Hispanic Americans, Black Americans don't think that way at all. Um, so I sort of had my, and, and so it was wild on October 7th to see all these people who had denounced me as racist for arriving at that conclusion in 2019 suddenly arriving at the same conclusion themselves like oh my god our friends on the left hate us <laughs> like mm -hmm. the progressives hate us and um, a lot of that sort of was I tried to uncover in my book bad news about how a lot of what passes for progressivism is actually about elitism it's these vanity virtues these vanity morals that people who have made a lot of money but still want to reserve the right to see themselves as the good guys against those evil conservatives while they can't admit to themselves that they're making so much more money than the average american so they had to come up with a new ideology that allowed them to paint the other side as evil as and racist and themselves as the good guys even though they were now wealthy and that's what wokeness is they allowed themselves to convince themselves that the real divide in this country is racial and that the other side is racist and transphobic and hates gays none of that is true of course but that it was this sort of mind virus that allowed them to perpetuate their status and the distance that they were able to you know cultivate from good middle-class american values like dr king's vision that we you know live in a colorblind society that now finally everybody wants that you know mm -hmm. so they had to find a new way to be better than the other side one of the things I don't understand is why so many people in entertainment are doubling down. Uh, last night I was I watched a piece of the Grammys, uh, like a very when I say a piece, I mean maybe ten minutes, uh, because I didn't quite frankly know that they were on. Um, and then I pulled up Hulu and it was on, and I'm like, okay, I'll I'll give it a shot. I always like have a little hope a, re a award show will actually make a difference. Turn it on. Annie Lennox calls for a ceasefire. I was like, nope. Not today, Satan. I'm out. <laughs> Call it like I'm not watching this shit. I'm not being a part of it. Shut up, Annie Lennox. Like, whatever. And she literally, she sang a song in tribute of someone that was like, cease fire, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you don't know what you're saying. And you don't know what you're doing. And you don't know 
anything about this. And I just find myself like Mark Ruffalo is nominated for an Academy Award. He's one of the biggest ceasefire people on social media. One of the worst, one of the most ignorant, like idiots on, on all of social media. So there's not a lot of what's interesting to me is like. You can get canceled a year ago for like, you know, there was a guy that was literally canceled for having a picture taken of him making the OK sign that someone thought was a white power sign. You can still get nominated for an Academy Award calling for basically like uh, no ramifications for the uh, rape and beheading of uh, babies in Israel. Uh, that's not really a question, more a statement. But uh, <laughs> why do you think why do you think there still is sort of like cultural like Annie Lennox was comfortable doing that last night? Yeah, I mean, I think it it comes down to there's a number of different different people do it for different reasons. I think in the case of, you know, the squad, let's say it's very calculated um, to to appeal to young voters. Right. So there's this kind of um, worship of youth on the left. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's just like so true. And it's so gross. It's just so gross. I think somebody like you who grew up with like a titan in your home, like would never be able to like have that but it's so prevalent like and it's prevalent among these like hyper educated millennials especially um it's in their parenting it's in everything right like this worship of young people who are stupid like they're supposed to be stupid you're supposed to be stupid when you're young and idealistic and then you're supposed to grow out of that and like you know start thinking more communally stop being so navel gazing so obsessed with yourself and your own emotions and like the temperature of your body and think about your community and think about your nation and like contribute what have you right but um instead the democrats because they do better with whoever they do better with electorally they become obsessed with and they pretend to be the the champions so I think there's a lot of sort of following the lead of like dumb young people who are on TikTok who are getting that lead from the Chinese Communist Party, which is sided with Hamas over Israel. Um, so you've got that piece of it. You also have woke mind virus, people who have been just anybody who's gone to a university, you cannot graduate an American university without having taken a composition class taught by an English PhD, who in order to get that English PhD had to go through a critical race theory seminar or a critical theory seminar in which they were taught the oppressor or oppressed binary, right? The idea that it doesn't matter. There's no difference between right versus wrong. There's only who has more power and who has less power. And whoever has less of it is inherently virtuous. So Hamas, because they have less military might than Israel, are the good guys. They literally, they can't see outside of this. This is like the all-encompassing view. And on the left and in America's cultural institutions, the more money you have, the more at stake you have in staying inside the establishment, the more tightly you're going to cling to this worldview because it masks so many things. It masks, first of all, the class divide. Wokeness is a smokescreen for the class divide. So someone like Mark Ruffalo, who's a millionaire, doesn't have to worry about the fact that everybody who works for him can't pay their rent and is struggling to, to, to achieve the American dream, even though their jobs are so much more important. If he can go out there and be like, I am the good guy. I stand for the ceasefire. Everything is racist. Zionism is racist, right? It's a huge smokescreen for economic privilege, immense, immense economic privilege. Um, there was, there's been a huge total realignment of the parties. And this ties into Trump and everything else to where it used to be the, the Democrats were the party of the working class. They had a lock on labor and the Republicans were the party of the rich and corporations and tax cuts and free trade. And the parties went like this. And now the Democrats are 
to the party of the over-credentialed college elites and the dependent poor who don't work. Mm -hmm. And then the Republicans have become the party of the working class. And so you're seeing all of these things start to shift. The vast majority of people who make over over $500,000 a year now are Democrats. 97% of political donations from Silicon Valley, Democrats. Nine out of 10 of the richest congressional districts, Democrats. That is wild. It's totally wild. Whereas the majority of, of districts that make less than the median income, Republicans. And that explains everything about American politics today, in my view, that class divide. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's really important. And I actually wanted to I want to talk to you about Trump, obviously. And this ties into your last book and your next one, I think, you know, talking about like woke media undermining democracy and then um, I know you can't talk about your book, but the next one you're coming that's coming out, please come back on the show when it comes out. Um, but when I woke up yesterday, this polling that just came out for Biden, I don't know if I've seen this bad of a polling like anywhere for anything. Maybe like O.J. Simpson post murder trial. <laughs> like, no, no, this is not hubristic. But yeah, I'm serious. Like and I have to say to for people that maybe don't know and have a life, a new NBC poll just came out and shows Trump ahead of Biden overall 47 to 42. It's a nine point swing from July. It's the biggest lead Trump has ever had over Biden. And Biden has the lowest approval rating since Bush's second term. For me, the most disturbing part is that the same poll shows Trump holding a 16 point advantage over Biden on being, quote, competent and effective. Um, And then Biden's approval rating has declined, obviously, to the lowest level that I said. Fewer in three in 10 voters approve of his handling of the Israel-Hamas war. And just to make this even more interesting, the two men are tied, tied, ladies and gentlemen, among Latino support, 42 percent Trump, 41 percent Biden. Um, Why are Democrats not freaked out? Because you cannot get elected fucking dog catcher with this, let alone reelect the president of the United States. But what's going on? I mean, and don't say it's an outlier poll because NBC does really, really extensive polling. I don't think it's an outlier poll. Um, It tracks with a lot of what um, I've been seeing um, out in the field. And I'm so glad you brought this up, Megan, because I was thinking to myself, like, what can I do for Megan McCain, who has done so much for the Jewish people? Stop saying that. No, it's so true. And it really, I have to keep saying it because it's so true. And I thought, well, what if I could make her slightly less upset that Trump is doing so well? Would that Please. not be so, at least something if I could do that? Because I've been hearing it in your voice, like how upset you are about it. Well, and, let me just interject. Like, yeah. I understand it. It's not that I'm like, I mean, I'm in the sense that like people feel so, like, I understand how Trump got elected. It's more that for me, there's just so many people I love in politics and have loved in the past that I would love to see have a shot at the presidency. And I have a problem with this like octogenarian stranglehold. I don't find either of these men inspiring. I could never vote for Biden. I could never vote for Trump. I guess I'll just go fuck myself again. Um, But it's (laughs) it's like it's just it's I'm going to give you the winning formula for these people. And also, he shits all over my family all day long. So, right. like, so, that, so, so okay. first of all, I have to start by saying I totally respect that. Thank and you. My mom is a single-issue voter. She votes on Israel. She's a very, very, very religious Orthodox woman, and that's the only thing she votes on. And even she couldn't vote for him because she saw him once make fun of a disabled person, that disabled reporter. Yeah. And that was it for Sarah Unger. Okay. That was it. And I so appreciate that and admire that about her. And I so admire you for, you know, having that in your gut, the defense of your family. Like, that's really important. And I totally, totally get that. Thank you. Um, but I, I think I can make you feel a little bit better about it. And then I'm going to give you the winning formula 
how okay. anyone can come out of the gate and immediately get 40% of the vote. <laughs> okay. Okay, please. <laughs> All right. The, okay. So there are a few things why I feel like anyone who cares about America and cares about democracy, specifically American democracy, should be super stoked to see Trump doing this well. And the first reason is, is just the billions and billions and billions of dollars that have been spent to try to stop him. That meant nothing in the face of the American electorate. I can't tell you how boyoed I am by that, how ecstatic that makes me, that his competitors in the GOP primary could outspend him two to one, that the Democrats could have thrown so much at him, and yet our democracy is so vibrant that the will of the people was able to transcend all of that. I mean, I, I really, I truly feel euphoric when I think about that because I remember when Citizens United came out and we were all like, forget it. Our democracy is done. When you can spend billions of dollars through super PACs, like what chance does the little guy have to get his guy in office? And I feel like even people who hate Trump, like there's something about that that is so comforting and astounding and amazing like and against all odds human beings americans going to the ballot box putting down a name it just it works and it worked and it's working and i i don't know it's, is that not like an amazing thing to like be like witnessing firsthand like setting aside how we feel about him i gave an interview i, I don't even remember a, a while ago and they the interviewer asked you have to say something nice about trump and i said it's such a <laughs> fuck you to the institutions and i think yeah. the institutions in the country and the politicians i agree with this that most trump supporters agree with it like they have deeply failed us on many different levels i don't trust it i don't uh, especially post covid where you know apparently most democrats just w would be fine with me being locked in my home and never leaving again and having every part of my life destroyed as long as they have ultimate power um you know every time i see gavin newsom anywhere i'm like yeah shut up french laundry you lock down the whole <laughs> state and you'll go get a $20,000 dinner like the like the like french revolution like level insanity like what are you talking about so I, too, agree that, like, I'm happy that it doesn't mean what it once did. Um, so, OK, that's a good point. All right. Continue. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So that's the first point. I would say the second point um, would be um, so he I he so in my book, which I can't really talk about because it's coming out in April. I hope you'll have me back. Oh, on, yeah. By but, all um, means. I, I basically interviewed tons and tons and tons of working class people across the country, um, both Democrats and Republicans, although most of them would not identify with either party anymore. And. Um, these people are um, just they're people that you totally would recognize from your life. You're not one of these people who lives in a bubble, like people that you care about instinctively who work and work and work and take so much pride in their work, have regular jobs that we all rely on. And he made them feel seen. And it's not just psychological, although a lot of it is psychological. They felt that he was talking to them and not in the like gross tweeting and the gross commentary. Most of them were like, yeah, I wish he would leave that behind. Like, that's not for us. They would say to me like the, the, the gross tweeting, the like the barbs, the attacks, that's for the other side to hate him, to keep him in the news. For us, it's about the policy and they'll rattle off policy that he did, starting with immigration, which was like that. That's why he is so much more seen as so much more competent than Joe Biden, because the number one issue everyone is thinking about is that border and these 10 million people who should not be here. Yeah. And Trump was simply so effective on that. But Megan, to be effective on immigration, he had to take on both 
parties when he got in because the Republicans, I mean, remember Reagan was the one who gave amnesty to three million illegal immigrants, right? The Republicans were not anti-immigration until Trump showed up in a big way. And that's really important to them because they see it in their wages. When you have 10 million more people competing for the exact same jobs as working class people have, that totally drives down the wages. And we know this because right now that's why we're not in a recession. Because mm-hmm. all of these new workers came, so it stopped working class wage growth in its tracks. And these people know that. And he made them feel seen. He put money in their pockets. I mean, that's what they'll tell you. And so people look at the economy now. They say, oh, look, there's so much wage growth. Oh, look, there's which halted, by the way. There was, but it's halted. So look, the stock market is doing great. The stock market is doing great. GDP is up. GDP is up. But all of those gains are concentrated at the top. But does it and matter so- if inflation's so bad? Everybody can keep saying like all this. Like one of my girlfriends, I talked about this on the show, literally sent me a picture of her receipt last Thanksgiving and this Thanksgiving. The difference of the same things, all the normal stuff she bought at Costco. And there was a, I don't remember, it was like a $100 difference. It was something extensive, especially for her because she is not an elite person. Um, and I think that's what the left seems to be missing is like, it's not, it doesn't matter if you're saying all these things, if someone's Thanksgiving oh. dinner costs $100 more. A hundred percent. And you know that they you know that the Democrats are now speaking only to the elites because all they talk about is how good the economy is. They literally don't know people who go to the supermarket and are like, how am I going to pay for this? They just don't know people like that. So I guess my point to you would be like, isn't it? amazing that these working class people like 50 percent 60 percent of our country who were ignored and abandoned by by both parties in their view by the sort of free markets and free trade that they feel the globalization the offshoring of manufacturing the open border the trade deals with china and mexico that they feel sold out their future and the future of their children they see in trump a champion on a policy front and if you bring up character to them, right, you'll say like, okay, well, but we, what about his character? They say, I just do not have the luxury of casting my ballot based on character. Yeah. And, um, and, and so to me, the fact that these, whatever I think of this person, the fact that they see, they feel seen and heard, they don't, that the gaslighting stopped for four years that like, oh, it's your fault that you don't have a good job. You should have gone to college. You're an idiot. It's on you. That kind of Obama yeah. t- messaging, right? That that stopped for four years. I mean, isn't that a good thing? It is. But I want to ask you to juxtapose this. What is Biden doing so wrong? Because he did, you know, I don't believe the election was stolen. I think he did win. And he was doing better approval rating. But I, it's amazing to me when you hear people on the left just completely, I mean, say they have their head in the ground is putting it, I mean, I, it's almost unfathomable, Baja. I mean, it's just crazy how much they don't see how, what a clusterfuck this is. Why do you think he has just lost the, the approval of so many people and the Latino vote is going to kill you? That's the thing. That's the highest growing demographic in the United States. Uh, highest growing demographic in my beloved home state of Arizona, swing state officially. I mean, that'll fuck you. That will. I mean, you. why are people fleeing from him so much? Um, I think it's a number of things. The age thing, it's very hard to see those kind of the the videos. I mean, the stumbling and the mumbling. It's horrible. And the, it's so painful. It's so undignified and sad. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. I think the border is the number one issue because it's the number one issue po- voters are giving for their concerns. And he's just been a disaster. That's the one thing you can really lay at his feet. The economy, I mean, 
he's he 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 screwed up on energy big time caving to the to the green left over and over and over that was big that would have helped on inflation some of the inflation though is not his fault the thing that the number one thing that is completely 100% his fault is the border he inherited a border that was being policed to the best extent that we've ever seen and now it is we're having historic levels of open it's an open border mm-hmm. and that was 100% by design so i think that is really the number one issue i think that a lot of democrats under trump they had the luxury of being like well we are sanctuary cities we support immigration because there wasn't any you know yeah. like we come to us welcome welcome right because the border was closed suddenly the border's open and they're being forced to deal with the fact that there's 10 million people here right so he you know i think that's the number one issue of course the economy president are always judged by the economy. So I think those sort of three things are the main issues that have people just, you know, even people who like him are like, I just can't. I mean, this is not a president. I think Democrats have really shown their ass with immigration, too, because they're all they're fine as long as like poor people in Brownsville, Texas are getting annihilated and having their jobs and their life 100%. destroyed. They're fine. That's OK for you. But it comes to Manhattan and it's all of, a, all of a sudden an issue. And I, you know, obviously growing up in Arizona in a border state, people just ignore things that are happening and ignore. And on top of it, it's when I hear people talk about how it should be open borders. And when you hear like people like AOC, there's clearly someone who has never seen like, you know, a dead pregnant person who didn't make it across the border in a coyote shack, which is what people that are paid to come and help uh, get, you know, it's horrible human trafficking and horrible, just like the worst kind of evil, vile shit that exists on planet Earth. And that's a humanitarian problem as well. So don't come to me with this like bleeding heart stuff like you don't believe in whatever. A lot of women and children die crossing the border and you don't care. And that's just my little tangent. But I agree with you when it's just horrible. I want to switch gears to to something else because your last book was about woke media, which I totally agree with. I love the book. It was so good. Really Thank important. You. I did. I really love that book. My husband gave it to me. It's it's fantastic. I remember I read it at the beach in like four days. Anyway. Um, oh, such a compliment. Yes, I did. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so Thank you, you yesterday, uh, something got a lot of attention yesterday on Sunday. Uh, George Stephanopoulos was interviewing J.D. Vance on the Sunday show this week. I don't care about Sunday shows anymore until they start being more balanced. I just I used to watch them religiously. And now I just the only thing I have room for is CBS Sunday morning with my love, Jane Polly, because it's very relaxing and it has a babbling brook at the end. And it's like, that's all I can handle. Um, but he cut J.D. Vance off mid sentence literally jd it would be like if you were talking now and i just cut your mic so disrespectful i wanted to hear jd vance's answer and george stephanopoulos like couldn't control his revulsion at like jd vance saying something he didn't like how do we get to this place i just think even three years ago that wouldn't have been accepted and you know i don't know what jd vance was saying that was i didn't like understand enough about what was so offensive but even if he's saying the most crazy stuff in the world you still need to let him speak Totally. The disrespect that's shown to Republicans, um, even ones in power, is, of course, an extension of the absolute contempt that the media and political and university elites have for the working class. So, for example, in that disastrous hearing with the university presidents where they were smirking at Elise Stefanik, they weren't smirking at her because they were talking about like Jewish issues. They were smirking at her because they never have to answer to Republicans and they have so much contempt for them. They just see them as subhuman. It is so disgusting. And that's what you saw there. And it was exactly the same as so when President Trump, former President Trump won uh, the Iowa election, the Iowa primary against um, basically he had like, uh, you know, against DeSantis and against Haley. He gave 
victory remarks that were actually quite nice. He was saying, now I want us all to come together. You know, it's becoming clear. I'm the last one. I want Democrats voting for me. I want Republicans. I want everybody. It was like a nice speech, you know. CNN and MSNBC refused to carry it. I mean, in what universe does that happen? Like former president, probable future president, they literally could not allow their listeners and viewers to be exposed to what he had to say. And they were so shamed by that, that the second time around in New Hampshire, they actually did air some of his speech in which he was much less gracious. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We went on the attack against Nikki Haley because he was mad that she wasn't dropping out. Um, But, you know, they literally cannot bear to expose their viewers to reasonable people on the other side because they, they know that their ideas are terrible and that their ideas can't win. And their only way of winning is to bamboozle and hoodwink people into thinking that the other side is totally evil, completely made up of misinformation, total liars, complete racists, complete anti-gay everything, right? They can't bear to actually engage the ideas because when they do, they find out that many of their supporters, Democrats, support the other side. So a great example of this is the don't say gay bill, right? The parental rights and education bill that DeSantis signed into law, um, which said basically you can't talk to kids younger than eight about sex, right? Like totally normal. And they had to rename it because the truth of the bill was that the majority of Democrats in Florida supported the bill. So they couldn't allow people to debate it on the merits. They would lose because they are only talking to elites with these elite ideas that don't have any purchase in the middle class. So they had to, they had to rebrand it and rename it. Same thing here. He literally could not allow his viewers to see him respecting. He had to do this sort of performance of contempt, put JD Vance in his place to make sure that his viewers knew who the good guy was and who the bad guy was. Because at the end of the day, all of this is about the class divide and keeping the views of the majority of Americans out of the mainstream because Americans are actually not polarized. So polarization is a totally elite phenomenon where people who make their money off of divisiveness and division, either in politics or in the media, they are super polarized. But average Americans, they're so totally not polarized and they hate this kind of divisiveness. They hate it. So I don't like George Stephanopoulos because um, he never had me back on this week when I worked at ABC when I criticized uh, Ilhan Omar. And I called, yeah, I called, if you ever, you can just like find a little Google search. And I said, I, it was, and then it was actually what led to Seth Meyers ripping my ass open right before I had a miscarriage about the same issue. And I forget exactly what I said about her, but I called her anti-Semitic. And again, this is like years ago when like, you're not allowed to say that and whatever. And I was called Muslim phobic. So, and I was never invited back on the show. Uh, and I, again, like maybe they, I was just shitty, whatever, but I had been asked to like go on like for a period of time when I was working at ABC. Um, so I'm, I'm like not a fan of his or the show for there's personal stuff. There's always like personal stuff with me. It's not always just political, but I feel like <laughs> I should give you that context. But what happens to like a George Stephanopoulos if Trump wins? Because you have to cover it. You have to deal with this. And the thing I don't understand is every time you cut off J.D. Vance's mic, a Republican sees that someplace on social media and is like, screw you. You're trying to silence us. So you're helping Trump. You're helping Republicans. Why haven't they gotten this at this point? Right. It's the same thing with the indictments, right? Like one indictment. okay, maybe he did something wrong. Two indictments. Oh, maybe he did two things wrong. Ninety one indictments. They're out to get him. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's. And but so how come the third judge wasn't like, "Ah, we're kind of hurting the cause here, fam. You know, let's let's kind of set this aside. And the reason is because they're not actually coordinating 
each person, each of these sort of over-credentialed leftist elites who has been in the university system for 12 years, 13 years, right, imbibing all of that woke crap, each one thinks that they are the hero saving America from, you know, what is essentially the desires of the working class embodied by Donald Trump. And so each one is sort of mindlessly like a zombie doing what they think the program is, but it's not actually being coordinated, which is why it's actually ends up helping Trump because it is so gross and they are so they it's like it's one thing if you have an ideology that most Americans really don't like that is really gross and goes against things like everything Dr. King taught us right but you're a little minority and you're doing your thing in your little corner and you make the average amount of money that everybody makes and our government is representative of you know yeah there's one or two people like you and then most of the people in government are like most of the Americans and most of the people in the media are like most of the Americans right that would be fine but the problem is is that this tiny elite with this totally sociopathic worldview has 96 percent of Democrats uh, 96% of journalists are Democrats, okay? The Democrats, the entire party is on this trans agenda when it represents 16% of their voters, right? So the problem is, is that all of the political power and all of the media and all of the powers that be, all of the judges and all of the people who are in positions to lead this country hold this worldview that only a tiny portion of Americans have but they have all of these positions of power that is the problem and that's why it's like it's not just like even if you don't vote for trump he laid this bare like he laid bare the moral bankruptcy of their claim to be representing anybody but themselves and their own economic interests well on that note that they they just don't care at what point does money and ads and actually being successful matter? Uh, this morning when I was coming in to interview you, it came out on the transom that uh, CNN has switching its morning show again and firing its two co-hosts and getting new people in, I guess, to host. And they're just basically reorganizing the chairs on the Titanic. Um, but they have their lowest ratings in all of CNN history. In all of CNN's history, they have the lowest ratings. I hate CNN. I need to preface that that some of my best friends on the planet work at CNN and I love and respect them and it's not personal and they know how I feel. Um, and they're good people who should honestly be ho actually hosting because they're much smarter than these people. At what point does it matter? Just like economically, like if you don't give a shit about the people, do you care about making money? Do you care about ads? Do you care about your network existing? Um, at what point do you think places like CNN make a shift or is it just like worship at the altar of wokeness until you the Titanic sinks into the ocean? It's a really great question. So CNN is, is, a, is a complicated case. Um, I'll explain in a minute. But for a lot of outlets, going woke was actually very profitable. And the New York Times is a really great example of that. So it used to be that media made its money by appealing to the largest swath, right? The great American middle. Because the more subscriptions you had, the better you did, right? And so then it was very important for journalists to report the news straight because you didn't want to alienate half the country. You'd lose half of your subscriber base or potential subscriber base. Today, um, because because of digital media and digital media ads never made as much as print ads, the real measure, and you know this, uh, of success is engagement. And of course, the most engaged readers are the most extreme, which is why you saw this kind of polarization of the media, because they were measuring success based on how 
the most outrage they could create. But in a place like the New York Times, it wasn't just outrage. It was outrage of a very specific audience because they still do have ads and they sell now first person data. They sell the data of their readers to other companies. But the thing is, you can you can make more money off of that if the readership is rich, right? It's the same thinking with ads, right? Let's say you want to sell an ad for like a Louis Vuitton handbag, right? You're not going to sell that to a magazine whose readership is working class because they can't afford it. Mm -hmm. So advertisers want some kind of assurance that no pleb no plebs are going to be seeing this, you know, like the majority of people are going to be seeing this or people are going to be in the market for, you know, a Louis Vuitton bag or in the New York Times magazine case, a Cartier watch, right? So the publisher wants to be able to prove to them that their readers are wealthy. And so they have to create content that will only attract the wealthy. That's what the New York Times does. You know, everybody misreads the New York Times and says, oh, it's so leftist. It's not. It's appealing to the educated elites. And what those people love is wokeness. They love racial outrage. They love outrage at Trump. That was the stuff that got the heartbeat going of these college-educated elites who people all the institutions because that's who he was the biggest threat to. And so the New York Times really leaned into all of this outrage coverage through this patina of like being this elevated paper. But really, they were trying to get this, you know, these 10 million upper class, you know, people in the top 10 percentile who are in the in the market for a Cartier watch. I mean, so the content started to morph to to fit the desired audience. Now, CNN, the problem with CNN was it always pretended to be down the middle, but it's clear that all of the hosts are completely wokeified, right? Oh, and yeah. so that's what that's what didn't match anymore because it was this sort of pretense to catering to everybody when actually the content was unbearable to anybody who wasn't in their little bubble. I really don't know where they go from here, but for a lot of outlets, becoming woke actually was, you know, was 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 pretty profitable for them. You know, I do think that um, someone like AOC is much more comfortable in the minority than she is having power. Like she is an activist. So she, I think, I don't think this is conscious, but subconsciously there, there's a level at which she doesn't want to win because when you win, you have to govern and to govern, I you have to make that. compromises and you don't get to go on Twitter and just complain and whine, you know, like you actually have to do stuff and you have to make compromise with people who you don't agree with. And no activist wants to do that anymore. Yeah. And I think, I think I totally agree with you. I, I, I agree that I don't think she actually wants to win because then she would actually have to, like you said, pass a bill, which would be complicated for her instead of just sitting around <laughs> in dresses that say tax the rich and going and crying on the congressional floor and making sure the cameras are in her face. I can't stand her. But um, my last question for you, and this is a little pop culture and wokeism, but like this is right up your alley. So the comedian Shane Gillis, do you know who that is? I, I don't know who that is. I'll tell you this story. Shane Gillis. I'm super lame. Don't worry about it. Yeah. It's, you'll, you'll get it. Don't <laughs> worry. So Shane Gillis is a very extremely popular comedian who got famous because he was hired to be a cast member on Saturday Night Live four or five years ago. I think I think four. At the height of like 2019, 2020, like height uh -huh. of craziness. He was fired four days later before he ever actually got to be a cast member on Saturday Night Live for, quote, offensive tweets. He is a comedian. Going to put it. Going to put that down. Cut to today. He has a number one Netflix special, a number one podcast, and is one of the largest comedians on planet Earth. Selling out arenas, huge star. My husband saw his Netflix special being taped here. Uh, huge. Saturday Night Live, it just announced he will be hosting next wow. week. 
Now, there's also rumors some of the cast is not going to be happy about it because the cast, um, there's people like Bo and Yang who refused to stand on stage on the exit with uh, Dave Chappelle when he hosted. There are cast members that are refusing to be on with uh, people like Dave Chappelle. So I'm sure Shane Gillis, who has pictures up on his Instagram account standing with thumbs up with President Trump, I'm sure this is going to be a real assault to your senses. So you have to talk and host with an actual person who's not woke. Um, what do you think this means? Some people are calling it cancel culture's funeral. You think it's a signifier that even Saturday Night Live and its complete rating slump knows that like they got to get a few of us Republicans watching at some point. There's nothing on in the world on planet Earth at all that could get me to watch this show except this. Is that why they're doing it? It's amazing. Um, there's there's a lot of evidence that we're in the kind of woke lash. The first being that the New York Times is running articles about detransitioners and people who regret, you know, transitioning, which is like a big deal. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm really shocked to hear this because to me, Saturday Night Live is so woke and so unfunny and just so unbearable in its smug the contempt. Yeah. Like acting like they are the good guys and the heroes and the aggrieved side when they are totally on the side of power like that's something that i hate is seeing the powerful beating up on the powerless while acting like they are the virtuous which is the mo of the democratic left today like it's so gross so uh, this is great i mean wow like hallelujah that's this is really exciting news i didn't know about this and yeah i definitely think this is i think you know first of all gen z is much less censorious than um than millennials are like they're they're weird like they don't have any sex which i don't understand that at all they don't drink they go to bed really early um like they're kind of weird but they also because they've lived their whole lives online and like everything is there for the taking they're like a little bit like less judgmental apparently um so they don't really have so i mean maybe that's playing a role here but yeah this is really cool i'm excited to see how it goes yeah and i think like you said i i hope there's a woke lash right now too because it's just been an absolutely insufferable years of this and seeing friends of mine get canceled for absolutely ridiculous and obnoxious things and the one thing I will say and I want to ask you just like this on your your personal level if you don't mind um you know for me I was I'm always conservative obviously I was like raised in a conservative household but my dad was like you know more independent more like mavericky as his nickname was and so you know I was more like no we can like work with the left and like we'll find common ground whatever and I still feel it's not completely exercised out of me. But COVID really, really has taken that giant red pill, shoved it down my throat. I swallowed it and it's now completely in my entire body. Um, it was a combination of all the things that happened to everybody else. The censorship, the applauding of the, the lockdowns, the, the Black Lives Matter riots destroying my neighborhood and people saying violence is okay. Like all the things that everybody happened to you happened to me as well. And now I'm very distrusting of institutions. I have a harder time than I used to in the past socializing with people on the left. I can still do it, but it's harder because I just find them to be, again, like, I don't know what joke I'm going to say is going to make you cry and get under the table. I don't know how you feel. Like, it's like, I just don't want to be around, like, sensitive daisies in general. I don't have that much free time. Um, I want to know from you. I don't. Like, when you go out to dinner, do you want to be with someone if you're having a glass of wine that they're, like, you know, want to cry about you saying, like, a joke or something? And I'm not a disrespectful person. You know, I was on The View for almost five years and never got canceled. I know how to, like, hold myself together. But I just want to know from you. How did your evolution go to being, you know, to a place where you're obviously anti-woke and have how has it impacted your personal life? Because it can be a cruel world out there. And I know like I've been in situations where people have been really 
fucking nasty to me because I'm conservative. And sometimes it's a hard thing to navigate. I think that's also the reason why a lot of people stay silent. What's that journey been like for you? Um, It's hard. I think if you're not religious, it's impossible. I could, I don't know how people who are not religious do it because there's so people really try to hurt you. They do. And they try to humiliate you and shame you in public, which is a very hard thing to get through if you don't have like a higher power that you answer to. So I, um, it, it's been really hard, but, um, yeah, I think being religious is really important and I don't, has that helped you in these times? Yes, it's a combination. I mean, I have a deep faith. I don't proselytize about it because honestly, I just think it's kind of boring content. <laughs> no offense. I'd rather talk about Jane Gillis. Um, I just don't think people like, you know, but I'm a, yeah, I'm like a practicing Christian. My husband and I go to church on Sundays and it's really important to have that baseline and faith is really important to me. Um, but I also, uh, I, maybe this sounds botchy. I don't know if this, I don't know how this sounds to you. But to me, I'm so proud that I'm not a lemming that bends the knee and like bucks to norms and bows to peer pressure. I think it's cooler. Like, I think if you're just someone who's going to go around and be like, oh my God, like words are violence and like I can't be in the same room with the Republican. Like, you just come off like such an asshole. And so I think for me, like it's brought this community of people like you. You know, there's just like this community of really wonderful, fascinating people who have really interesting things to say. And even if like I disagree with you, like, it's so much more interesting than hanging out with someone who's like a progressive social justice warrior who just wants to bitch the whole time. And I just feel like, <laughs> you know, for me, I'm really proud of the kind of example I'm setting for my girls. Like, I'm like, mm-hmm. I was not someone there was a time when you could have put that black square on your social media and your mother didn't because she thinks mm-hmm. with her brain. So that's how I've gotten to it. But I'm also like contrarian and defiant by nature. And I don't want to be a part of this club. I don't want to be a part of this club that's judging poor people, that thinks that, you know, Jewish people, Asian people, South Asian people, Indian people, and Hispanic people are not minorities. Like, nope, not a club I want to be in. And there's just a lot of their values that I think are so fucked up. And I think also, like, you know, this anti-Semitism stuff, this raise of over 100% increase in anti-Semitic hate crimes, I know the difference between good and evil, and that is evil. And I'm not going to be a part of a club that's going to spread evil and make Jewish people scared to be in America. Not today, Satan. No. So I think that's where I've come from, too. But there are those moments where you're at dinner or wherever. Somebody yells at you. Somebody's nasty to you. Somebody unfollows you on social media that you thought was your friend. And you you, you grow a spine real quick. Sorry, that's a tangent. Does that, that happen to you, too? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just, yeah. you just, you just know who your friends are, you know, and it's, but you know, but now I'm friends with people like you. Anyway, I am very proud of you. I, you know, not that you give a shit, but I am so I proud do. of the work you do. Thank you um, so much. I love everything you do. You can find Botch's work. She's the opinion editor at Newsweek, author of Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. It's very, very good. And you have a new book that's going to be coming out in April called Second Class, How the Elites Betrayed America's Working Men and Women. Really great time for that book to be released, by the way, coming up in the spring. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Um, some a lot of people shared their stories with me and I I feel really humbled that they trusted me to tell their stories and I'm so excited for people to meet these people um, in the book. Yeah. Thank you, you so promise to come me. back to talk about yes, it? Yes. Okay, yes. Good. Thank you so much, Megan. Thank you for everything. <laughs> the woman, the myth, the legend, Batya Ungar Sargon. I'm really so grateful to have you on. Thank you. Come back. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Megan McCain has entered the chat. I'm so excited about our next guest. Mary Morgan is co-host of Pop Culture Crisis at Timcast Media. It's a daily live show on YouTube that navigates the insanity of today's pop culture. Mary, I've been watching your work for a long time, and I'm just so happy you uh, decided to come on the show. I didn't think I didn't know if you'd think you were slumming it coming on my podcast. So thank you so much for <laughs> taking time. <laughs> uh, of course not. I don't think that at all. Thank you for having me. I'm really flattered that you've been watching the show. I didn't know that. Yeah. Research on your guests. I do. I do. I actually, how I got into it, my husband watches Tim Pool and has been on Tim Pool's uh, podcast and show. And um, you are on on occasion. And I remember seeing you and being like, oh, she has something really interesting to say. And then I saw that you host your own show. And, you know, I like pop culture as much as I like politics. And I like, uh, uh, anti-woke, more interesting contrarian perspective. And you guys certainly give that about a lot of things. But I was very sad to hear that Olivia Rodrigo's stands came after you very hard. Oh, I I kind of blocked that out of my memory. <laughs> but since you bring it up, yeah, that was crazy. There was just that. Did you see that video of her that was circulating on, on sorry, X, yeah, uh, not yeah. Twitter? Yes. She was just... She's trying screaming. to be punk and it's like not really landing. And I agreed with you. I didn't know that she had this yeah. kind of that kind of a following, though, uh, which was interesting. But before we get into like different controversies, I just want to start out with your background because you're very young. You're only 23. How did you end up getting into this like space of commentary, of pop culture commentary, and then ultimately being a part of Tim Pool's team? Yeah, the story is kind of bizarre. If you if you want me to get into it, I can. Oh, no, I'm like, fascinated. The full... The full butterfly effect story basically it started because i got into a bar fight (laughs) in dc after cpac in 2020 which was right before covid lockdowns so people were just memeing about covid but we didn't really know what it was yet so this was after cpac i was at harry's which is no longer uh open (laughs) in dc and Uh, Basically, I I won't get into the whole scuffle, but basically um, I ended up having to defend myself in a bar because a woman grabbed me by the neck and pulled a lock of my hair out. And it happened to be that uh, Cassandra Fairbanks at the time is now Cassandra McDonald. She was there as well. And after the police were called and we were all standing outside and I was giving a testimony to them, she walked out and handed me that lock of my hair that was ripped out of my Oh, my God. And, it, you know, it's actually – it was funny at the time, and it's even even funnier now, thinking back on it. Like, and and to see how that progressed is funny because Cassandra is Tim's editor-in-chief for his news website. So they are friends and colleagues, and uh, I remained in touch with Cassandra over the years after that. And then I guess Tim just asked her for a recommendation for someone to co-host this pop culture podcast and appeal to the the Gen Z youths out there. And I happened to pop into conversation. And yeah, I came out here to visit the castle one time. There wasn't really a job interview, I guess. It was sort of just a vibe check. And I passed the vibe check. (laughs) And now I'm here. And I kind of was just thrown into this line of work that I had zero experience with prior. Literally had never done anything on camera except trolling on TikTok. And I'm now banned on TikTok. That happened like a week after I got hired here. Um, Why are you banned? Yeah, I had zero experience like doing a podcast or any work on camera, no acting, no nothing. 
Um, and I kind of just had to adapt really quickly. And thankfully, it went well, because it really was a, a, a gamble. They didn't really know me that well. And uh, funnily enough, I'm, I'm kind of the most conservative, like, right wing person at this company, if I had to guess. Can so, I ask you two things? I have a lot of contrarian takes. So do I. And I, I love it. Well, first one, what was the fight, bar fight over? Or do you want to keep that private? It's fine. I've been in a bar fight myself one once a very long time ago, if that makes you feel better. And my hair, too, got ripped out. Yeah, it, you know, <laughs> it's only awful <laughs> to, only to keep it like on public record that I was defending myself. Basically, um, I was there at CPAC with my brother and this woman named Mindy Robinson. I assume she's some kind of like pro Trump influencer or was at the time. She happened to be in the bar and he like throughout we were about to leave. It was like 2 a.m. He was walking out the door with me and he like threw out some insult and said that she had a big forehead and she was very, very offended by this. And basically uh, she like told him, like, step up to me, like, come over here because she thinks that she's really badass, even though she's a tiny woman. <laughs> and she put him into a headlock um, and obviously, you know, my brother is a grown man. He can get out of the headlock. He thought it was funny. He was laughing. I mean, you can see in this was being like recorded. This was like being live streamed. You could see that he was laughing. It was funny. Um, and he said, no, she was like, say that to me again, uh, or call me ugly again. And, uh, I called her ugly again, uh, as I was watching on the sidelines and she pushed my brother away and then directly like wet to reach out uh, and grab my neck. And then the second that she touched me, I defended myself, grabbed her by the neck as well. And we sort of got into like a, I don't know, like we were locked in place and then, then we were broken apart, but she, she ripped that part of my hair out. Um, and my hair was damaged at the time, so it was probably pretty easy to do that. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it, it was kind of like my adrenaline was pumping. It was kind of scary in the moment, but I thought it was hilarious. And everyone who watched thought it was hilarious. And I look back on it fondly. I can't believe that. <laughs> Especially because after that, the COVID lockdowns kept us all at home. So I yeah. had my one like brief moment of, of wild times. There. You could have pressed charges. I mean, that's like very violent. But I mean, not that we could have. But, uh -huh. the you know, the police offered and, you know, they did put her in handcuffs, if I recall correctly. Um, outside the bar and you know we we were asked if we wanted to press charges but it it wasn't that serious so we didn't yeah. end up doing that cpac's wild man i've heard some insane <laughs> stories from cpac like for real like i'm sure you have things yeah. like in this vein i i don't like i have never been to cpac and i don't go to see my husband has been but i don't um and i i always hear not like this but like people really get their drink on and just like live <laughs> well, trouble. Look, I, mm -hmm. also for the record i was 19 at the time yeah. and also i didn't drink until i was 21 um so i was only drinking water that night as was my brother we were fully sober uh i don't know mindy's story that's for her to tell but i don't uh, know according her, to her i had the crazy eyes Okay. And I've been told that a lot. Well, I mean, I have been in this industry for almost 20 years. And to pull a Mariah Carey, I don't know her. I have no idea who that is. And I know who you are. So I think things are going a little better <laughs> for you than her. But I want to get into like your more conservative-ness because you are young. You're 23. And you went to CPAC, as you said. You're very open with your Catholicism, which I really appreciate. I saw a panel you did with Dave Rubin 
Um, and I didn't really understand the panel and forget, forgive me. Uh, there were just like a lot of women on it. There were like, I mean, it looked like there were like 10 women on it, uh, talking about cultural things. And the one woman was trying to defend, uh, basically being on doing porn and, and being porn and you, uh, argued against it. I can't believe we're even having to sound like the grandma here. I'm 39, but I can't even believe you're on panels where people are trying to say if, I'm not like a anti-sex person, but I think porn is probably something you go into if a lot of left turns have been made in your life. What was that experience like? Yeah, so that was on the Whatever podcast, and those are usually pretty big panels of up to like 10 people or more. And usually the way it's set up is that um, the one side of the table that the host, Brian, is on, that's where people who are more on, uh, I guess, the, you know, the right, if you want to call it that, they will be sitting there. On the other side is going to be usually, you know, college girls who are from the area who tend to be very liberal and girls who do OnlyFans, girls who are strippers with those kind of histories um, who probably want the exposure of being on the podcast to promote that. And they also, you know, want to defend their decisions, which no one has asked them to do. They're volunteering to defend their lifestyles, uh, which... I obviously have moral objections to. And when I was on that specific panel you mentioned with Dave Rubin, it was weird to me that he was even sitting on that side of the table with me because he kind of agreed with them on everything, almost everything that they were saying. Um, Because Dave Rubin is, uh, you know, more libertarian, I guess, centrist. I said, like, no one would accuse him of of being a conservative anyway. Um, And I don't believe that he's religious either. And, uh, yeah, he, he was kind of just saying, like, you do you. Like, whatever floats your boat, you should do what makes you happy. And if doing sex work makes you happy and is your, you know, path to flourishing and, you know, financial freedom all power to you. And that is, I mean, as I I could not be more opposed to that sentiment. Um, Not only because I don't think that they are happy, um, but also, you know, you could be making hundreds of millions of dollars and you could convince yourself you're happy doing that kind of thing um, in your 20s. And I I would still say that it leads to a path of self-destruction essentially. And it's also bad for society at large and the men who are funding their lifestyles. So um, afterwards, I I did like publish a tweet saying, you know, Dave Rubin, you know, he's not conservative. So it was kind of confusing to me that he was sitting right next to me and espousing all the same beliefs as all of these women who do sex work. Yeah, I think I actually don't know what he considers himself. I know he is embraced in conservative circles, but I don't I actually have no idea. Um, I do want to ask you, have you gotten any um, there's like this weird sentiment in culture right now where um, to be Christian and to be Catholic and to have like sort of any Christian proud Christian faith. It's seen as something by a lot of people on the left and a lot of people in culture is sort of confusing. And then you have like a movie like The Sound of Freedom come out and people are shocked that it's making hundreds of millions of dollars. My agency recently opened up a segment of their agency that's like literally for the heartland and for like Christian content. And I think people are finally seeing there's like, you know, money to be made in that space. Um, How do people approach you when you're like, you know, uh, and I'm not saying this to be like in any way ugly. There just aren't a lot of like women hosts who are like proud Catholics and open about their faith uh, in a way that you are. 
You mean like how do people react to that? Yeah, are people ever nasty to you about your your faith? I mean, not to be so blunt, but you know, I find that that's there's just such an anti-Christian sentiment in so many people in entertainment and news uh, that it's you know it's refreshing to hear a young woman talk about it. Well, of course, when it's brought up or if I'm questioned about it, I'm perfectly transparent and willing to answer questions and willing to talk about it. But at least on Pop Culture Crisis, my show, I don't intentionally bring it into every conversation. I make my my own moral principles known, and um, I, I don't intentionally try to uh, hide that in any way. But I don't want to be the person that's constantly, like, Bible-thumping, I guess would be the word. Sure. Um but that doesn't mean that I'm compromising in any way. And yeah, of course, people have been nasty to me about my faith or they've tried to discredit me um, or said, you know, maybe I'm hypocritical because, you know, maybe I haven't gotten married yet or had a family yet, even though I think that those are You're definitely things to aspire to. I understand, you know, 23, but at the same time, there's this other side of the culture that's saying you're the the 30s are the new 20s and the 40s are the new 20s. Sure, so sure. I understand the reaction in the opposite direction. I definitely have gotten a lot of criticism from basically every side. Um, and, you know, I, I try to take it all in stride. I'm still figuring out how to navigate that in the healthiest possible way. Um, Can I if ask you have you... any advice for me, I would love to hear it. Oh, I don't think you – I mean, I you are doing everything right. <laughs> really, I really <laughs> like your work and I really – and. You know, when I, well, this actually feeds into my next question. So I was, I'm 39, I'm an old millennial. And when I was, um, sort of in my like, you know, college years, Sex and the City was like the biggest show on television. And I don't, do you even know what that is? Do you know what's that? I mean, yeah, I, I I have heard of it. Yeah, it's an older show. It's for old people, whatever. I didn't but watch it personally, but yeah. You can skip it. So it's basically <laughs> the premise of the show. I have actually a real resentment towards the show now. Um, yeah. It is a show about like four single women in New York City. I went to Columbia University in New York City, and they have sex in the city. All they do is have sex yeah. and then like talk about their problems. And it's very like, it's like graphic, but I guess by today's standards, not as much. And I think that it has sent extreme poison to women of my generation. Um, when I was younger, I kind of was like, oh, we have forever. 30s of the new 20s, same type of thing. And when I was about 32, a woman named Margaret Hoover, who is my friend who works at CNN, said to me over lunch, was the, the smartest advice maybe anyone's ever given me about anything. She said, you have to take your fertility as seriously as you do your work. And you're not doing that. You're not dating the way like, you know, you are for someone who like wants to get married. I know you want to get married. I know you want to have kids. I know all these things. And it was like a real dose of reality. And I can't believe I was I was 31 or 32. I don't remember. But around that age, I can't believe I got to that point before I started really being like, oh, my God, what what am I doing? And I feel like part of it is just the culture tells young women you have forever. Uh, you shouldn't date for marriage. And I sound again like a grandma. But I, I think that it's a lot of really toxic messaging. Um, are Zers doing anything different? Because clearly you got the message of just like, if you want to get married and have kids, you should like take dating more seriously and, you know, not like go by Sarah Jessica Parker. Um, do you think Zers are doing anything differently? Because there's actually a lot of data uh, that Zers are maybe more conservative and that they're not having as much sex and that they are uh, not drinking as much. Do you think that's true or that's a stereotype? I am definitely cautious about saying anything is a white pill for Gen Z. Uh, all of these trends have their own explanations that 
are actually more depressing. I think Gen Z is having less sex because they're socializing less. Gen Z mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, they're hooking up less because they, uh, and they're drinking less because they don't go to parties. They don't leave their homes. They're always on their phones scrolling TikTok. Um, I personally know Gen Z girls who are veering the other direction, but that's just because of the circles that I run in and like the fact that I know other girls who are devoutly Catholic and things like that. But at large, um, I, I really don't think that uh, I can say confidently Gen Z is less lost than the millennials Mm. actually. Um, I see that millennials have frustrations with Gen Z for being sex negative. They're calling them the puritine generation, uh, (laughs) which is just to mean that they, uh, they have more negative or uh, skeptical ideas about pornography, about sex work, and the liberal feminism that promotes those things and glamorizes those things. But they still don't have the essential vocabulary to even uh, criticize those social movements. They don't have the vocabulary to even call something morally objectionable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're still deeply nihilistic. It's reflected in their sense of humor. It's reflected in in the fact that they're so socially isolated. I, I don't feel optimistic on the whole for Gen Z. I wish I could say that and and you know have something more positive to say about them. But unfortunately, I think that they're they're not on a good path, and they're also not getting uh they're not getting much encouragement from the right either because every time that they sit on tiktok and they start crying about the fact that they need to work 40 to 60 hours a week to not even make rent the conservatives are uh saying you know suck it up you know you gotta work to to make a living in this country and um it's just not really offering them a positive alternative and that's kind of a, a larger problem on the right in general is that every time that uh, Gen Z has something valid to complain about, like cost of living or like uh, the brokenness that has followed the sexual liberation movement. Um, there's not really any positive alternative being offered to them. They're just getting pummeled into the ground. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. And I also feel like I had this conversation. I have some friends in my life who are single, not by choice. They have dated into oblivion or just having a very hard time. And, you know, it's hard out there on the apps, whatever. And they're good people and yeah. conservative women. Um, and I, both of them have come to me at different times saying, it's weird that the Republican Party uh, seems to have a lot of messengers who are like, if you're not married and you don't have kids, then you're invaluable, which to me is like hurtful. And I'm married and I have kids because it's like, why do we want to shame people for maybe not reaching the, you know, the goals they want to again, want to get married, don't want to get married, whatever. Everybody can do what they want. But I agree. There's a lot of like sort of like weird, toxic messaging on that front. Do you do you feel that way as well? Well, if you ask any Gen Zer or millennial, I guess, why they are avoiding starting families or why they don't want to get married, it's usually not because they think those aren't aspirations in life. It's because they've been so assaulted with fear mongering, basically fear porn all the time, whether it's in the language of like climate catastrophe or economic catastrophe 
they don't have an optimistic worldview for the future. And I don't think they have much reason to, to feel positive about the future. And uh, the, the older generation isn't really offering a positive alternative if their only message back to them is, you know, uh, clean your room, bucko. And I want to <laughs> I want to say, you know, for men, uh, for young men, that messaging like Jordan Peterson type of things like male leaders giving them tough love that really resonates with young men. But you can't expect that message to resonate the same way with young women who want to feel affirmed. They want to feel encouraged and validated and all, all of those cringe terms. They uh, you know, they want to be recognized and they also want to feel they have human value. And in this in this pornified, individualistic, modernist culture, they don't feel like they have any intrinsic value outside of what they can uh, offer to a corporation, basically, what money they can make for a corporation. And um, they they feel that they can work their entire lives and not have anything to show for it at the end of the day. Um, so why would they want to start a family if they have nothing uh, to pass on to their progeny, you know, yeah. I think that they're just very nihilistic. And that's the reason why they they may not aspire to start families. I think you're right. And I think the stuff about the climate change porn is really important because I know that's a huge thing, which is just so insane on so many different levels and really toxic. Um, I just want to switch gears a little bit. Um, did you watch the Grammys last night? I, like most people, did not tune into the Grammys last night, but I have, uh, you know, familiarized myself with some of the viral moments. Okay, so I didn't either. I didn't even know it was on. And then I saw on my Twitter <laughs> feed when I was checking it, it's like hashtag Grammys was number one. I was like, oh, I don't, I had no idea. Um, the, one of the things that's getting a lot of attention, though, is that um, Taylor Swift seems to, like, snub Celine Dion while she was accepting album of the year. So I just need to say, like, I am a Celine Dion super fan. I saw her in Las Vegas. She was wonderful, like voice of an angel, like very important to, I think, older millennials because she was like kind of like the first Taylor, I guess, or comparable um, or like comparable in fame and and, and success. Um, I I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. And I, I mean this, Mary, I don't want to have any violence directed towards you or me or pipe bombs put underneath my house. <laughs> I am sick of Taylor Swift. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. I don't want to have violence directed at me or you because her fans are so scary. And it, it like scares me the level of attention. But I thought it was um really kind of classless for her to snub Celine Dion. And I've seen the picture afterward backstage. I know she's accepting for the first time. But Celine Dion has a very serious illness. The first time she made an appearance in public. What do you think of that moment? I watched the video and I understand like it, it is a little bit rude. Um, it's a little bit bad etiquette to not make eye contact with her as she passed off the award and everything. But I honestly think that for Taylor Swift, whose public image is uh, spotless at the moment and, and really for a long time, like really has been, um, this is, is this really her big F up? Like, this yeah, is what fair. she did to, to make people hate her. It could be a lot worse. I didn't think it was that bad when I watched <laughs> the video, but maybe to the Celine Dion stands out there like you, it was deeply disrespectful. I don't know. Just because people on the Internet are making a big deal out of something doesn't mean it's a big deal, I guess. Well, that's true. That's obviously and true. And they were also saying she should have thanked Travis Kelsey in her acceptance speech. Like... All right. Really? I don't think that. Um, do you think uh, this all this conspiracy theory about her being a psyop and her and Travis being like put together to somehow get Biden reelected? 
Uh, what do you think of that, that, you know, conspiracy theory that's going around? And um, I don't know. What do you think of that? It gives me so much secondhand embarrassment, I guess, um, when I see all of these political junkies and also sports junkies like trying to make sense of Taylor Swift when they are not her target audience and they are not her demographic. Like I gave comment to um, a Washington Post article that was just published about this issue and questioning, like, is Taylor Swift going to give her endorsement to Biden 2024, which she obviously will at some point here since she did in 2020. It's not surprising about her public views. Um, She agrees with Democrats. That's that's really out of the question. Um, But it's it gives me secondhand embarrassment to see conservatives not approach culturally relevant people or topics with a spirit of inquisitiveness. Instead, they they want to attack immediately. And if you want young people, especially young women, to sympathize with your side, that attacking the person that they love and idolize is not the way to do it. Mm-hmm. No, I, I don't... She, I, I mean, it's really like... I, I understand, though... All of the conspiracy, like, that just boils down to a concern, which is a valid concern, because pop culture has an outsized influence on politics, which it shouldn't have, and celebrity idol worship is essential to that, and it's really ramped up in the last couple of decades, and I see that Taylor Swift gets compared to Michael Jackson a lot in terms of relative success and notoriety. But I feel like if Michael Jackson, at the height of his fame, made some political stance or endorsed a political candidate, the people who like Michael Jackson's music wouldn't immediately say uh, that they would back this, that they would vote for the same candidate that he endorsed. Because at the time, celebrity idol worship was not nearly as big of a cultural ill as it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw that poll that they did. It said 15% of voters. Uh, reported they're likely to back a candidate that Taylor Swift endorsed. My God. That was kind of misreported. I mean, just when you read that headline, it's extremely depressing because, I mean, think for yourself, like have some level of independent thought. But it it wasn't as bad as it seemed because if you look at the poll, it was like 1,500 people that were surveyed. And I think an almost equal amount of people said that they would be less likely to back a candidate who was endorsed by Taylor Swift. And then the rest were just like, I don't care who Taylor Swift supports. So really, it's only relevant to, I guess, the portion of her fan base that isn't politically engaged, is kind of politically moderate, but could be swayed either way. She also endorsed Marsha Blackburn's opponent, and obviously Marsha Blackburn won. So she's not... I'm actually curious if she does end up supporting anyone. She's not omniscient. Like, you know, it's like, like, as you said, like, there's just no celebrity on planet Earth that's going to influence my vote. But I don't know. I'm I'm not like someone who worships at the altar of celebrity. But uh, Mm -hmm. 15 percent is too much, even if that's a (laughs) a big poll. Um, I just want to move on to uh, Kim Kardashian being the new face of Balenciaga. Um, This is a weird story because for anyone that wasn't paying attention, Balenciaga had a very gross and bizarre and uh, disturbing uh, ad campaign like a year ago, six months ago. I don't remember the exact timeline. That was in 2022. Oh, my God. It was two years ago. Yeah. Mary. A while ago. Excuse me. Oh, where is my time? Oh, my God. That's so embarrassing. 
I have a I have a year old child, so that period of time my brain time is flies. like melted. Yes. Anyway, okay, so it's 2022, but um, I was really disturbed by the scandal. Um, it's not like I was out buying a ton of Balenciaga anyway, but I did have a Balenciaga purse. I actually ended up selling because I just felt like if I carried it, I would be endorsing pedophilia on some level. Um, why is she comfortable being the face of this brand, and why do you think this brand has been able to sort of like turn around and not have any culpability for? Again, I think one of the most disturbing can- ad campaigns I-, I probably have ever seen. Yeah, to, I guess, explain to anyone who might not be familiar with it who's listening, um, they photographed child models holding teddy bears that had BDSM bondage gear on them, which is obviously sexual in nature. And then also they pictured one of their purses in a different campaign um, sitting on top of court documents from a Supreme Court decision that in my understanding, um, led to a more lenient uh, precedent on illustrated child pornography. I don't know if I'm allowed to say those words on your podcast. Yep. Sorry if you need to bleep that out. No. But um, at the time, Kim Kardashian was obviously associated with the brand and was being asked for days to make a statement because this is just so obviously wrong. And it's not morally complicated in the least. Mm-mm. And she waited because she said she needed to talk to the team to understand how this could have happened before she made a statement on it. And later on, she defended that period of time that she waited um, and said that it was an example of c- cancel culture mm-hmm. that she was criticized for not making a statement soon enough when I can't think of something more obviously wrong than what they did. Um, so that in and of itself was ridiculous, especially because she's a mother, you know. I mean, anyone, regardless of whether you're a parent, could see how disgusting that was. But as a mother, she it should really feel horrible. even more strongly about the safety yeah. and protection of children. And now, uh, yeah, it came out that she is one of the official brand ambassadors for Balenciaga just a couple of weeks ago. And I covered that. And I... I wanted to think like, oh, she's in it for the money, but actually it's because she doesn't have morals. <laughs> she has no moral priority other than her own fame and keeping her own inner circle of elites uh, in good graces with her. She doesn't need Balenciaga's money. She doesn't need a brand sponsorship from literally anybody. She is a billionaire, has a brand of her own. She has skims. She's just fine. Like, her bank account would not suffer from declining this opportunity. So it really has nothing to do with money and everything to do with the fact that Kim Kardashian and really her entire family is just the avatar for everything that is wrong with our culture today. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I have a really hard time with the Kardashians for all the obvious reasons. First of all, like, again, if you can't come out saying, like, I'm anti-child exploitation and child porn, and there's no gray in that story. It was obviously intentional. It was obviously intentional to be like, you know, here's child porn cases. We're trying to be okay with it. The photographer had a bunch of photographs that came out also that were in my opinion, child porn as well. Um, it's it's a disgusting story. Again, I will never. I'm not a Balenciaga buyer anyway, but like I would never buy it or carry it again for all the obvious reasons. I don't understand that why she would continue doing it. Like you said, the Kardashians. I you know I had watched the show when I was younger, and I do agree they just sort of encompass all that I don't want my daughters to be. Meaning like you know they all have just 
and this sounds horrible, but like they've all just fucked up their faces so much in all ways, like putting the fact that we feel like as women and there's and I know you, my producer talked to you about this, like apparently there's like this thing that Gen Zers are aging differently. And I just feel like if a bunch of young kids are putting shit in their faces because they want to they feel like it's the thing you have to do. And when I see like the giant lips and the whatever, whatever, I am feel like something is going wrong when this family is influencing the way women think beauty is. It's the only form of beauty. And I agree with you. I just don't know what they're doing. I mean, it's just really disgusting. Uh, Do you have anything to say about the plastic surgery part of it? Yeah, I think that they're inspiring young women to hate themselves. Mm -hmm. That's that's what they're doing in this culture. Um, I think that recently Megyn Kelly did a segment where she talked about uh, an actress named Erin Moriarty from the show The Boys. She went through an intense transformation whether it was plastic surgery or just fillers I don't know she didn't really clarify after the fact but it's obvious that she got work done to an extensive degree and also wears this Kim Kardashian style makeup that contours your entire face to look unrecognizable and uh, she said that she's a Kim Kardashian disciple and that's exactly what it is Um, now I think that trend is changing um, I see that even the Kardashians are like evolving in the way that they present themselves. They used to want to appear very like ethnically ambiguous for a long time. They were accused of blackfishing and now they are, you know, getting their BBLs either removed or reduced. They're like getting skinny again. They're on Ozempic or whatever they're doing. They probably have like recovery clinics in their homes so that no one knows when they make these surgical changes. Um, and they're also like, you know, they're lightening their skin again and they're dating white men all of a sudden. So not only do they influence the way that women look and beauty trends uh, and fashion trends and makeup and all that, but they also have an outsized influence on uh, women's taste in men, which is very worrying. Yeah. And it's all just so I think it's there's it just feels very like Twilight Zone episode, like that actress you referenced her face looks I mean, she she's completely and I, I, I have compassion for whatever is going. There's something mental happening if you're doing that to your face as well. Um, right. But this idea, it's so I mean, again, I'm old. So just like keep this into like consideration. I'm 39. I'm going to be 40 next October. Um, I have never done an injectable or anything in my face ever because I don't fear aging the way I think I've been told by society I should. And um, my dad died of brain cancer, and the idea of putting toxins near my brain is, like, I'm just way too paranoid about it. Like, there's no proof of anything. I'm just, it's my own feeling. I'm just not going to put botulism in my fucking face. Um, so I just want to know, uh, you know, do you think there there really is a backlash, uh, like you said, with the Kardashians? I really hope so. I have two young girls, and I really hope that by the time they're old enough, this will sort of be a phase that's over, but... Um, it really, really, really scares me. Well, whatever replaces it is going to be worse. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> I mean, oh you God. can't. I mean, can can you really predict that things are going to improve from here? I mean, no. whatever the Kardashians or uh, whoever replaces them, they're going to be worse than the Kardashians. And I can't predict what that's going to be. But um, people are talking about heroin chic making oh a God. comeback. And I would say that's not good, but at the same time, if it's something that we can aspire to without going under the knife for it, that might be an improvement. All of these celebrities are on Ozempic because they're looking for the temporary gratification. Um, Instead of making a lifestyle change to lose weight, let's just make ourselves sick 
Mm-hmm. So we're essentially medicalizing bulimia mm-hmm. um, and making ourselves look monstrous in order to get thin again. Um, and then we're acting surprised after we stop taking Ozempic because we gained all of the weight back plus more. Yeah. Um, well, it's because you didn't actually put in any of the work to have the figure that you wanted. Um, but really, that's just a testament to the endless narcissism of celebrities. We've talked about this on the show. I I was like, you know, I know tons of people on Ozempic and I uh, I am not skinny. I'm like go up and down with my weight. I've had two babies, but I exercise and I do all the healthy things. And someone asked me if I would ever take it after I had my last daughter. And I was like, all I know is that there ain't nothing in the world for free. There is no easy way out. The only way out is through. And I'm not putting a needle in my stomach to to lose weight. It doesn't make sense. And I feel like the world is making me sick with the stuff they're putting in my food. Now they want to give me a shot to make me thin. No, there's too many questions in that. So I, I'm very. Like, are we really going to trust Big Pharma? Yes, to that's give us what... a magic solution. Post COVID, <laughs> how are so many people like? Give me this thousand dollar shot. It's great. I'm mm-hmm. so confused by it. Um, I know uh, we're running a little bit on time, so I just want to like wrap this up by just going back to you personally. How did you end up coming to a place? Because you're very young to be like sort of a free thinker conservative you obviously have this like hit show what what was your background there where you didn't become someone who idolized the kardashians and you know all the negative tropes that come with being 23 i wasn't intensely sheltered um which a lot of people would accuse me of having had a religious upbringing um i think in my household i was just allowed to ask questions about literally anything and everything and i would get the the real answers to to anything and everything and i didn't have to turn to the internet or to celebrities or to friends who were bad influences maybe for those answers for you know things that uh like like things that resulted from the sexual revolution or beauty standards i didn't need to outsource that to the culture so you're either going to teach your kids or the world is going to teach your kids how things are and how how they should act so and how they should look um and i definitely was I, I wasn't one of those people who like left the left. I don't really have some kind of inspiring story about how I woke up one day and I just saw the truth of everything and I started doing my own research. I was allowed to do that for my entire childhood. And um, I was, you know, I, I was raised Catholic. I'm a cradle Catholic. Um, I was raised with conservative values. Uh, my parents were always pretty politically engaged. In fact, my parents met because um, my mom was a volunteer on my dad's political campaign. Oh, so um, I love they were that. always <laughs> very politically engaged and paid attention to those things and talked to me about it. And I was allowed to ask any questions I wanted about the origins of the universe, about religion, about any of those things. So you can raise your kids in you know, religious upbringing, but if you don't, uh, if you're not going to be their authority, then the world will be their authority on everything. And that's not going to lead them to a good place. But also, I think for me, it maybe is just a temperamental thing. You can kind of do everything right and your kids will end up disagreeing with you. It's, I, I feel like I've always just been this way. I always was the person who um asked the the contrarian questions in class and i was a little bit of the wild child at least relatively for the kind of schools that i was in in like a catholic or religious school um and as for my religious views i 
first, like before going to a Catholic high school, I went to Protestant schools. So um, I was kind of picked on (laughs) for being Catholic. Not that it's a bad thing. Like, honestly, I think that it was a good thing for me to face some of that adversity and be questioned on my beliefs at such a young age, even if it was from adults who probably shouldn't have been doing that or from my peers who maybe didn't know better. I think that that only strengthened my beliefs uh, to this day. Mm -hmm. My final question for you is on pop culture crisis. um, You know, it's a daily show. It's a grind. Um, What are the topics you love covering? Uh, What what gets you up in the morning excited to host your show? Um, You know, what what is like your favorite kind of thing to cover? And um, what has been your like biggest reaction so far again for this like ever growing show right now? Um, Because like you said, you didn't go into it, going into your life being like, I'm going to host this show and it's going to be really successful. You're somewhat new at it just because you're young. Um, What has surprised you the most? Wow. Okay. So I'm always searching for things to cover constantly. And that's kind of why I have to be on Twitter all the time, bookmarking things. Um, We are almost at 100,000 subscribers as we record this. Maybe we will be by the time this is out. Um, so that's really exciting. The yeah. channel is doing well. I'm really excited about that. I think that since I joined and over the time that I've been on it, um, I've veered the topics we covered to be like more what women might be interested in. So I've, I think I've influenced like our increase in the female portion of our audience. It's like a quarter female uh watching us on youtube at this point and i only hope it goes up from there so usually what i like to cover is anything like a celebrity feud or like drama i just really love tea like that Mm -hmm. um because i don't have all the background knowledge that my co-host does he's around your age and he's like watched everything and he has all the background knowledge on that type of thing and he relates more to the the guys in our audience on that stuff, like superhero movies, comic books, video games, that type of thing. Um, but I like more of the like interpersonal feuds, dramas, things like that. Um, I haven't enjoyed covering Taylor Swift recently because it's kind of like always in the news cycle and it's getting tired. It's getting stale. Um, but at the same time, like I do have fun talking about that stuff. Like, I don't know. It's just it's nice that we get to cover something different every day. Cause mm-hmm. if it were just a Taylor Swift podcast, or if it were just a movie review podcast, then I would be bored out of my mind, but it's always something new every day. So that's fun. Yeah. And it's really great. And again, you can find her show pop culture crisis on YouTube at Tim Cass media. And I just want to thank you so much, Mary, for taking time. I know it's hard to do like almost a full hour with me and then do your whole show afterward. I really appreciate it. And I really, really enjoy your work. And it's nice to see like fresh, interesting voices, as I say, with my like old lady gray hair everywhere. (laughs) But it's nice to see like cool young women coming up. Uh, There was a period of time when I thought there was a little bit of a, I don't know, like a dead zone of (laughs) years. And all of a sudden, there's some really interesting people. So thank you so much for taking the time and uh, come back anytime. And like I said, you can follow Mary on Twitter, X, whatever, at Mary Morgan and check out Pop Culture Crisis at Tim Media and YouTube. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you all so much for listening to Megan McCain has entered the chat. I will see you on Thursday. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Megan McCain Has Entered the Chat, brought to you by Teton Ridge. I am your host and executive producer, Megan McCain. Additional executive producers are Miranda Wilkins, Eric Spiegelman, and Wynn Weigel. Our supervising producer is Olivia DiCopolis. Our senior guest producer is Kara Kaplan and associate producer Austin Goodman.